Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Please strengthen your servant today and speak from your heavenly pulpit right into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we are moving into Revelation chapter 13. The vision of the beast. And uh, it actually begins in the last sentence of chapter 12. So we're going to scoop that up and then move into chapter 13. And it's talking about the great dragon, the red dragon, who is Satan, when it says he at the beginning. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns, on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain, must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. All right. So we have this vision beginning with the red dragon who's standing on the sea, positioning himself there to call up two beasts that then come out of the sea. We've just read the story of the first beast, but there's a second beast coming in the second half of the chapter. He, they're calling, he's calling them forward, or they're coming up from the sea in order to help him, it seems, make war on the people of God, the people of the earth. 
And then, in verses 1 and 2, he sees the beast, I, uh, John sees the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So, here we're introduced now to a new character. We've met the great red dragon, who's Satan, as we're told in 12.9. Now we have this beast. But, wait... We actually got a glimpse of this beast earlier in chapter 11. In the story of the two witnesses, suddenly, almost out of the blue, we're told in verse 7, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. You remember that the two witnesses represented the witnessing church of the Lord which faithfully witnesses to the world until it is conquered and killed by the beast but we really weren't introduced to the beast in chapter 11 that's what happens here in chapter 13 and here we're told five things about this beast Number one, he comes out of the sea. Now, we saw in 11.7 that it says that he rises from the bottomless pit. But there's really no difference between these two things. The Greek words are different, but there's a lot of overlap between these two words. And they can both mean the depths, the abyss, the netherworld. So, they're really saying the same thing, it seems. This beast rises up from the underworld, the dwelling place of evil, or the swelling place of evil. The second thing we learn about this beast is that he is hideous, monstrous, grotesque. Ten horns and seven heads will not win you a beauty contest. The third thing we learn is that he is against God. You can see this from the fact that there are blasphemous names on its heads. The fourth thing we see is that he's given power from the devil. The dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority to it. And the number seven and the number ten in the seven heads and ten horns emphasizes the completeness of this oppressive power which the dragon delegates to the beast. And then the fifth thing that we learn about him is that he has beastly characteristics. Like a leopard, feet like a bear, mouth like a lion... Um, In Daniel chapter 7, there's a vision of four beasts, and they represent four empires. And this beast seems to be like a composite of those four. 
each of those four had different animal faces and they're the same animals mentioned here. So it seems like this beast is meant to represent some kind of worldly power. So let's read on. Verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Now the Greek word here for wound is translated 11 times in the rest of Revelation as plague, always referring to something God's in, God inflicts upon someone who's on the earth. And so this wound is from God. God brought this upon the beast in order to try to figure out what this wound is that's been healed. That's the first thing to realize. It seems to refer to the wound inflicted that is predicted by Genesis 3.15 where God says to Satan that the seed of the woman would wound him in the head. This, of course, is the wound inflicted by Christ on Satan's forces at his crucifixion and resurrection. So, if that's what the wound was, how come the wound is healed? Well, the wound was very real and very fatal. But it appears to have been healed because the beast is allowed by God to continue his activity for a while after he's wounded. After the resurrection, you see, the power of the evil one, it was restricted and its days numbered but he was still allowed to attack God's people during the period before Christ's final return, even to the point of killing the two witnesses. In the meantime, of course, God safeguards the spiritual security of his people, even though he allows them to be outwardly attacked. Continuing in verse 3 and into verse 4 and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshipped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying who is like the beast and who can fight against it you know the devil is a great actor the epitome of darkness, he disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11. He's so convincing that the whole world buys his act of apparent triumph. They worship him and give him their allegiance. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it, they say, mocking the many passages in the Old Testament which use the same language referring to God. And then in verse 5, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words 
and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So Satan has the power to persecute the church during the entire church age, but notice that the power is not his own. Or the, that is, the beast is given this power by Satan. But it's a power that's given ultimately from God. And it's given for only 42 months. That's, again, the symbolic period, the three and a half year period, 1260 days between the two advents of Christ. This church age that we're in now. But as the beast persecutes the church, he also has a big mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words against God. This reminds us of his deceptions in Eden. What God said is wrong, he said to Adam and Eve. You will not die. In fact, you'll really live if you eat this fruit. For I can give you what God cannot. And they swallowed it. Verse 6, interestingly, makes explicit that God's dwelling means his people. We've seen that several times, but this is the first time it's actually made explicit. His temple, his dwelling, is the same as his people. We've seen how this includes the saints, even though they're still alive on earth. They are also dwelling in heaven, for Ephesians 2.6 tells us that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, also it was allowed, that is the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. So here it repeats what we already learned in 11.7 where he kills the two witnesses. But when we read this We must also remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, when Christians are not persecuted, they are living in a situation that's sort of exceptional. All around the world, believers are living in the very normal situation of regularly being persecuted for their faith. And woe to those who complain about how bad things are, as if the normal is supposed to be that we're supposed to live smooth and easy lives. As Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
1 Peter 4. And then continuing into the second part of verse 8. Again, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So everyone on earth is infatuated with this beast with one great exception. Those whose names have been written on the Lamb's book of life. The fact is there are two humanities. Those who are of the world and those who are of Christ. It's not always clear in the now which, who, which people are in which group. But increasing persecution exposes the falseness of the faith of many. And as the end draws near, the distinction will be much more clear. Those of the world will give their allegiance to the beast. And those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be preserved by God through every satanic storm. Then verse 9, this very common uh, sentence in the New Testament, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. This, whenever you find this, it's a call to stop and let what is being said sink in. Here, it seems it's purposely placed between two important points. And we have to assume that that means it refers to both. Both what comes before it and what comes after it. Verse 3 through 8 before it tells us that believers and unbelievers are always at odds. On two separate paths, the Christians can't go along with the world around them. But must be prepared to remain loyal to Christ even if it means acting contrary to our earthly citizenship, even if we are punished for it. But then the second point follows in verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So here God's people are called to be resolved toward the reality of persecution in their lives. If a Christian is going to be arrested and put in prison, or even if he's going to be slain with a sword, so be it. It is God's will. The Christian life is serious business. It can even be fatal. It is very possible that someone here sitting this morning will be called to be imprisoned for their faith someday, or even killed. And that's why the passage concludes with this. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. If anyone has an ear, 
let him hear. It's going to be hard, but Christians must not give in. They must keep holding on to Jesus even in the midst of the storm. So that's the tour of the passage. But the big question, it seems to me, which rings out after looking at this passage is who is this beast? And how is this beast different from the red dragon in chapter 12? And how is this beast different than the second beast, which is going to emerge from the sea after this? And is this beast something of history, or is it something in the present, or is it something in the future? Well, let me tell you who I think this beast is, and then explain why. Like most Bible students, I think this first beast is what we call the Antichrist. Now, this is the first time we've talked about the Antichrist in this series on Revelation. Some of you, I'm sure, grew up hearing about the Antichrist almost every week in church. Probably others, the opposite. The Bible only mentions the Antichrist explicitly four times. All of them in the writings of John, who wrote Revelation. But there are other places in the Bible which clearly talk about him without using the name. In fact, the first time we hear about the Antichrist in the New Testament is in 2 Thessalonians 2 where Paul is writing to the Thessalonians to correct their misunderstanding that the day of the Lord has already occurred. Explaining that certain events must occur prior to the day of the Lord. Namely, a great rebellion and the coming of one he calls the man of lawlessness. And the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. So let me start by explaining a little about the Antichrist. In the Greek, Antichrist means either against Christ or in place of Christ. And the Antichrist is both. The Antichrist is a biblical figure who is both the earthly arch enemy of Christ and also the one who seeks to usurp Christ's position. He comes to the party, the costume party, dressed as Christ, if you will. He's a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing, in lamb's clothing. In fact, the many parallels between the description of this beast and the things said elsewhere in Revelation about Christ have led most to the conclusion that this beast is the Antichrist. There's too much for it to be pure coincidence. Both of them are introduced as having horns, 
Christ as the Lamb. Both were slain and then rose to new life. Now, of course, there's a big difference between the healing of the beast's wound and the Lamb's resurrection. The Lamb really did overcome death by resurrection, and his triumph is eternal, whereas the beast's resurgence is short-lived and will ultimately end in destruction. But it is a pretend resurrection, if you will. That helps them get more followers. Both of them have followers who have their names written on their foreheads. Both receive spectacular worldwide worship. Both are given authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Both are expected to return at the end of history, the one to destruction and the other to eternal victory. So our passage presents the beast as a demonic counterpart to Christ. His career is sort of a parody of Christ, especially his death and resurrection. He even derives his authority from the dragon, just as Christ derived his authority from the Father. But several verses lead us to the conclusion that Antichrist is not just an individual who comes at the end of history as the incarnation of evil, but also has many smaller, more preliminary manifestations beforehand. For instance, in John, 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 1 John 4.3 Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God and is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. In 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who did not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. In other words, though there seems to be an antichrist tyrant coming at the end of history, There are many lesser antichrists who will appear down through history. And since this beast is said to do his thing for 42 months, the time period we've seen in the book of Revelation that we're in now, before Christ returns, it seems like the beast is not just the future antichrist with a capital A, but the spirit of antichrist during this time period. So, in conclusion, this chapter before this, we're told about the triumph of Christ in one of the most glorious passages in the whole book of Revelation. Remember there was war in heaven and Satan the dragon was defeated and thrown down to the earth and a loud voice in heaven said, 
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. That's 12, 7 to 11. And we were really getting into this triumph when suddenly we were hearing about this devil coming down to the earth in great wrath and furiously making war against the children of God. And then we come to chapter 13 and it's even worse. Not only are the satanic forces attacking God's people, but they're being allowed to conquer them. Right after Christ's authority over the whole world is declared, the beast is given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. It sort of doesn't make sense. It's like there are two conflicting scenarios that are being painted here, side by side. But that's the point. Christ has triumphed, but his triumph has been hidden from the world. And Satan has been defeated, but his defeat has been hidden from the world. So from an earthly perspective, it looks like the forces of evil are the big winners and Christ and his people are losers. But the reality is the opposite. Though Christ's people look last, they shall be first. Though they look like losers, they're actually the winners. Though they look like the lowest of victims, they are more than conquerors. And hear this, beloved, this is what the book of Revelation is all about. This is why it was written. Because while we're feeling trampled and stomped on, God wants us to remember that the fact is we are triumphing even as we're being stomped on. Satan, on the one hand, is a mortal enemy. He hates you and me. He hates your marriage. He hates your family. He hates your church. There's nothing he wants more than your demise. He and his cohorts will boast over you. They'll threaten you. They'll scream right in your face. They'll get you fired from your job. They may even hold a gun to your head. They'll mock you for your insignificance, for your weaknesses, for your failures. You're a loser, they'll say. All the while, they're just trying to get you to let go of Jesus. 
They know that if you hold on to Jesus, you will conquer. You'll be one of the overcomers who will be richly blessed by God in a thousand ways. The fact is, the only way you can lose is if you forfeit. As long as you keep fighting and keep trying, you will inevitably succeed. As with Job, Satan is just trying to get us to give up on Jesus. To walk away and say, that doesn't work. To curse God to his face. So, we can't relax. We have to be alert, like an on-duty secret service agent. Our enemy will fire flaming darts when least expected. And it seems like it's only going to get worse as the day approaches. Now, suppose things really do get much worse than they are now. Suppose that in the years to come, we look back at this time like it was the golden age, like things were easy. It's very possible. Instead of hoping that that doesn't happen, don't you think that we should be preparing ourselves in case it does? Isn't that the wise thing to do? And what can we do to prepare for that possibility? I want to give you five brief things. If you want to prepare for a day in the future, which may be much worse than the time that we're living in now, here are five things that I think are important. Number one. One thing that you will definitely need is community. You will need a community of people who are willing to pray for you and what you're going through. A community of people who are willing even to risk their lives for you, if need be. Peter had a praying community to return to when he was sprung from prison. In Acts 12, Paul didn't lower himself in a basket over the city wall to escape. In Acts 9, a community was needed in both cases. Number two, another thing we need is stronger faith. The struggles we're facing right now may be preparation for bigger things to come. It may seem like it's so hard that you don't even know if you'll survive. There may come a day when the things you're struggling with today look so small and easy compared to what you're dealing with. As Jesus said, learn to be faithful in the little things so that later you will be faithful when the big things come into the picture. Luke 16.10 The third thing, this also 
means helping one another to grow in faith. Not just striving to grow in faith ourselves, but helping others to grow in faith. When severe hardship comes, it's not just us who will need to stand strong. It's this community of faith around us that will need to stand strong. So right now we should be involved in strengthening one another, in being discipled and in discipling others. Encourage one another and build up one another, Paul says to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, first letter. The fourth thing. We should also be seeking to understand the Bible and what it teaches. One of the main ways our faith is being attacked and will be attacked is by deception. And if we don't know what God has told us, we will be so vulnerable to Satan's deception. How will we be able to discern between what's true and what is his deception if we don't know God's word? Number five, the final one. When we raise our children, we have no idea what their lives are going to be like in the future. But it would be foolish for us to raise our children with the presumption that their lives are going to be easy. Even as easy as ours have been. They may, may live in a time which, where it's much harder than it is for us. They need to be prepared for hardships, for suffering, for persecution. Those things, if they happen, shouldn't come as a shock to them. Now, I said we can't relax. Praise the Lord, we can rest. If our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, we can rest. Because through it all, Christ is on his throne. And he's put his seal of protection upon his people. And the day is coming when Christ will come out of hiding. And he will appear in glory. And he will throw all the powers of evil into the lake of fire. Once and for all. And it will be all be over. Hallelujah. But for now we must not live by what appears to be true. But by what God tells us in his word. We must hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Though it may get us persecuted. It may even get us killed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have said to us in your word many disturbing things. And Lord, we trust that you said them because we need to hear them. We remember how the disciples were unable to accept 
what Jesus told them about the fact that he was going to die on a cross. Lord, we don't want to be like them. We don't want to just be the kind of people who refuse to face the harsh realities that you tell us about with regard to what's coming. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That we might be ready. That we might stand faithful. That we might cling to you no matter how hard the wind blows and the storm beats upon us. Now, Lord, we thank you that you have not just called us to be strong and left us to bear the storm alone. We thank you that you've called us to one another and we thank you that you've also promised that you will be with us. And we pray, O Lord, with gratitude as we come to the table of our Lord that you have given us this table of strength this nourishing food by which we might be strengthened as we remember the one who gave up his body and his blood in obedience to you and was faithful to the end and thereby accomplished our salvation may his spirit dwell in us as we go forth into our lives. Visit us now, O Lord. May Jesus be our true food and our true drink. We pray in his name. Amen.